0: Hi, Northwest, I got some of your merch, I'm going to be repping you on the north end, I'm excited about it, got a hat, got a sweatshirt, let's go, let's go. I really like you, I'm predisposed to like you, you're Ben's spiritual family, and I love Ben and Bridget, I love you, I've received from you over the years, you are a people of devotion and your devotion has made an impact on my life. Years ago, I would drive up on an occasional Wednesday to sit at the feet of Pastor Steve. He would gather pastors, and he would just teach. And I thought, oh Jesus, if there's any way I could ever teach even close to to that, would you grace my life in such ways? My wife taught near Bible college. She taught Old Testament theology and Hebrew and Greek. So we've, in some small way, received from your ministry and participated in it. And now that Ben and Bridget are here, we just love them. I would follow Ben into a burning house. I would. He fears God, and he has a pure heart. He's made a profound impact in my life. Azariah, Judah, love you, proud of you. Watch these kids grow up, man so it's just good to be with you. Yeah. Would you turn with me in your Bible, please, to 1 Corinthians 13? It's going to take me a little while to get there. You're going to have to be patient or open up your Bible app to 1 Corinthians 13. You have all the notes in front of you. You'll see them on the screen. Today, I want to share with you a message entitled, The Most Excellent Way, a study on love. And this is one from my heart. This is one from the present moment of my life with Jesus. With our congregation, I'll call these devotional teachings. So on occasion, I will interrupt series. We're presently studying the book of Acts, and I'll just do one from the heart. And that's what I want to share with you today, the most excellent way. Let's pray and invite the Holy Spirit to teach us, and we'll continue. Father, it is in the name of Jesus that we come most grateful to participate in your life. Resurrection life is upon us right now. And King Jesus, we welcome you, incarnate word of God, as we behold you through the scriptures afresh. We want to encounter you. That's what we need. It's what we want. You are love incarnate. So ultimately, we just say, lead us to you, cause a fresh encounter with you. Spirit, teach us all truth. Bring healing to us, Lord. Wash guilty consciences mend broken places of soul. We trust you for that, that you'll do something beautiful and wonderful, something supernatural in the midst of this gathering. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Love, where do we want to start talking about love? I mean, everybody's talking about love. All you need is love, right? What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. (laughs) Last night, I went a little higher. My voice is still waking up. Where do we want to start with the subject of love? I mean, we're obsessed with it. All of our songs are about it. So many of the stories we tell that we watch on screens are about the, the nature of it and the application. We recognize the power of love, certainly, don't we? Some of us feel very comfortable utilizing the language of love to talk about things that we we like, like, I love the Seahawks, which is true for you. It's not for me. Please, maybe I'm already turning you off as a listener. I'm a Rams fan. Don't hate me. Love you, Northwest. I've come by it honestly, born and raised a Rams fan, okay? But we say things like, I love the Seahawks. At the same time, we will say something like, I love my wife of 27 years. Of course, I think we recognize that the context often defines what we're saying. Let's, let's hope no one would say, I love the Seahawks, like we love our spouse, right? Some of us feel comfortable sharing this language of affection and connection with those that we care most deeply for. Others of us are, are struggling at times to articulate this. Because when we investigate our own story, we weren't expressed love as we were molded and shaped. And so this articulation is a little more challenging for us. Where do we want to start with love? We just recognize its power, don't we? Well, for our purposes, how about we start with the author of it? We read in First John that God is love. And that's rather a definitive statement, isn't it? But let us be careful to understand what John's going after here. He is not saying that love as an abstract thought is God, that love is God. God is everything, including love. But really what John is saying is that in all of his being, right, God's autonomous, which means this, he answers to no one. There is no authority that he has to answer to but his own personhood. God can be any way he chooses to be and yet John says God is love. John's suggesting that everything about God's motivations towards his creation is loving. God is motivated by love. So what is love and who is this God who is the author of it. In the Hebrew scriptures, our Old Testament, there are two primary words for love. The first one is the Hebrew word ahava. You want to say that with me? Ahava. It's an easily pronounced word for us, isn't it? Some Hebrew words are not that easy. Ahava. And it basically refers to a sort of affection or care one person shows another, and it's all over the Hebrew scriptures. It sometimes describes physical affection, but there are other Hebrew words that speak to physical desire or sexual attraction. Ahava is much more broadly used. For instance, Abraham had ahava for his son Isaac, and so in a sense it references parental love. Jonathan showed ahava for his friend David. It's brotherly love. The Israelites showed achavah towards their king, David. So it captures something about loyalty. These are all different kinds of, of affection or movement towards others described by this one Hebrew word, achavah And these help us understand a bit more of the references to God's achavah for his own, his people. In Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 and 8, Moses told the Israelites, the Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath, he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery. So Moses is telling Israel on behalf of the Lord, listen, the Lord is not impressed with you. You're not big. In fact, you're the smallest. The Lord is not setting his affection on you because you're impressive. You're not. But the Lord loves you. The Lord set his ahava on you because of who he is. And isn't it worth noting that potentially God particularly loves the spaces where you are small and insignificant. His vision seems to run to those places. God loved Israel because of who he is. Because he is love. This is who he is. He loves Israel because because he does. Uh, This text also contains the other primary Hebrew word translated into our English word love and that's the Hebrew word chesed. I know you want to say that with me. You can use that little guttural tone. Say it with me. Chesed. Yeah, you can say chesed. It's far easier. But chesed. The chesed love of God. The Lord did not set his chesed on you. That's actually there. And later, you see in Deuteronomy 7, 7, and 8, where we see the English word love. That's ahava. So both of these words are present in this text. It's a marvelous concept all over the Hebrew scriptures, all over, Hesed is all over. And it's a word that the biblical authors primarily used to describe the God of Israel. In the most repeated refrain in all of the Bible, Hebrew scriptures going into the New Testament, the references back to this happening in moment, it's the most repeated moment in the Bible. In Exodus 34, Moses is up on a mountain with Yahweh, with the Lord. And there he is receiving the covenant. Some scholars like to say that this is the moment when God's getting down on his knee and pulling out a ring and saying, would you be my people, right? I want to be your God. And so as Moses is up on the mountain with the Lord and this display of grandeur and glory is happening, right? God smotes the top of the mountain as the text reads. Moses asks to see God's glory. I mean, it's, it's this yearning, right? I love this moment in Moses' life. Like he is encountering the awesome God of the cosmos, the God who initially whispered to him from a burning bush. He's encountering him more fully. And what is Moses' response? I want to know you even more. I want to see your glory. So the Lord tells him, of course, if you saw me in my fullness, I would consume you. <laughs> you can't handle me. You can't handle the truth. is what the Lord tells Moses. But I'll hide you. The text says that he hides Moses in the cleft of a rock, so he settles him somehow in between a spot where his his vision is limited. He covers his eyes. He passes by Moses, and as he does so, he proclaims his character. And I think one of the most beautiful things about this text that we're able to grab onto is that not only does, does God allow Moses to see a hint of his radiance his absolute otherness. But he also declares his character. So glory is not just about radiance. Glory is about substance, character. And he declares his character. Look with me, Exodus 34, he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in chesed, and faithfulness, maintaining hesed to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Hesed is is not easily translated into English uh, because of all of the concepts that it captures for us. Sometimes in, in your translation, and here in Exodus 34, you'll have something like overflowing with loyal love. Sometimes when hesed is used, you'll read kindness in your Bibles. Sometimes you'll read loyalty, sometimes you'll just read love. It combines these ideas, love, radical generosity, and enduring commitment all into one, chesed. It describes a a character or an act that is motivated by a promise-keeping loyalty based in deep personal care. I made a commitment to you because I love you. And whatever you do, I have intentions of keeping my word to you, Hesed. Think of me, uh, think with me of, of the story of Ruth as an exampling of hesed between humans. Ruth captures the story of a, a foreigner married to an Israelite man very quickly, he dies, as does his brother, who's also married to a foreigner, and his father. They all die, and all that Ruth has left is her mother-in-law, Naomi. And Naomi is so bereft of hope, she actually says, my hope is gone, and so practically bereft of hope, she says, Ruth, you should go back to your people. I have nothing to give you. And she means it. She's not being, you know, dramatic. I have nothing of inheritance or promise or purpose to offer you now. All of the ways in which that would have been communicated are gone. And so she suggests a renaming of her, Naomi, to Mara, right? Bitter. She says, you should go. Well, her sister-in-law does go back to her people, but Ruth, what does Ruth say? I will go with you. Your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. And so as people watch Ruth keep her promise to Naomi, this is what they say of her, that she is an example of chesed. She's an example of this committed way that originates in the person of God. And while while Ruth's example is stellar and exceptional, let us admit that the one who's doing the overwhelming majority of chesed towards others is God himself. It's not us. In fact, what the Hebrew scriptures tell us is that we really struggle with this sort of love, but God doesn't. Think of the story of Jacob. He's he's a treacherous liar. He's a cheat, most especially with his family. It seems the closer you get to Jacob, the more you're probably gonna be mistreated. He's a liar. And yet God gives him the promise that he gave to his grandfather, Abraham, that through you, Jacob, and your descendants, I will bless the entire world. All the nations will be blessed because of you. Quite the promise. But it's not until about 20 years later that treacherous Jacob has enough perspective and understanding to realize how profoundly undeserving he is. And listen to what he says to the Lord in Genesis 32, I am unworthy of all the chesed and faithfulness you have shown your servant. I do not deserve your way with me. And doesn't that help us understand that chesed has profound tones of grace to it? It Sounds a lot like grace, doesn't it? God's generous loyalty to his promise in this care quality, he invites Israel into covenant relationship. This is who I am, and I'd love for you to be able to show some of this back towards me. But of course, as, as, as the story unfolds, this God who is full of hesed finds that his covenantal partners really struggle with it. And they say, yeah, we love you, but we also really like our own ways, and we love all of the, the gods of the nations. We're going to run after them as well. The prophet Hosea compared Israel's chesed to the morning mist. Here one moment and gone the next. But God's love, though, is enduring. Listen to the psalmist, Psalm 136, which opens with, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His chesed endures forever. Do you know how many times that's repeated just in Psalm 136? 26 times. The Hebrews Hebrews record centuries of both their own struggle with this sort of love and humanity's betrayal of, of the commitment of God to us. So others arrive on the scene that begin to speak of the way God's going to keep his hesed that he's going to send one who would keep Hesed in all the ways we couldn't or wouldn't. That this God of the cosmos, this God who proclaimed Israel for himself, that he would become human and he would bind himself to us in the person of Jesus. And as we get to the New Testament, those following Jesus tell us that in him, they encountered the God of Israel who is full of loyal love and faithfulness. Of course, we know that Jesus is the ultimate loyal and loving human. Now, the New Testament, of course, is written in Greek, common Greek of the day. And love, in the New Testament, while there are many words for love, and often there are different meanings for these various Greek words that we translate into love, the the Greek word that captures the way of God towards humanity the most is a word you may be familiar with agape, agape. And that brings us full circle. It brings us back to John's statement. God is agape. Lest we be tempted to define God's character and nature through our own faulty way of expressing love, listen to how John contextually defines love. 1 John 4, 9, and 10. This is how God showed his agape among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is agape, not that we agape God, but that he agaped us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. This is love, and you are not free to define it however you want. This is love, not that you traffic in it, but that you have been loved by one and can learn it. This is love, that you were made in his image And as an image bearer, you are invited to discover the depths and the riches of the love of God for you and humanity. This is love, that he loved us. And do do you notice how John describes the, the love of God? What's the defining action attached to the love of God in this text? He sent or he gave, he gave. This is love, he loved us and he gave. Radical generosity. It reminds us, of course, of John's observation. Of course, put in the mouth of Jesus in the Gospel of John, verse 316. For God so loved, so agape the world that he gave. Radical generosity marks the love of God towards us. As the New Testament unfolds, this radical love of God, of course, finds a Jewish Pharisee zealous for the ways of God. His name was Saul. His Greek name is Paul. And, of course, he becomes a most influential follower of Jesus in the first century. So changed, so transformed is Paul by the love of God that he would travel most of the Roman world in, in the mid-first century, and he would go to people and places who had never heard of the love of God, never tasted of the grace of God, and he would proclaim it to them. This Paul was committed to the places and the people that he visited, and so not only did he go there in his travels, but then he would write letters to them to care for them, to instruct them in the ways of God, to help them along in faith in Jesus. By the way, within a, a Greco-Roman pagan world that was quite opposed to a king named Jesus. So we have 13 of Paul's letters in the New Testament. He wrote more than that, by the way. We just have 13 collected in our scriptures that we now hold as authoritative to help us understand God and his ways. And and all over Paul's writings, you're going to learn about the agape of God. You're going to learn about the love of God. Paul knew that he was loved by Jesus. And so it finds its way into so many of his articulations. For instance, to the Romans, Paul asks this question based on the love of God. If God is for us, then come on, who can actually be against us? Now know this contextually. Paul knew all sorts of people who were against him. Paul knew spiritual opposition. Paul knew material opposition, human opposition. Have you read Acts? Everywhere he went, there was opposition. But this is Paul's understanding of the love of God. I mean, if God is this for us, then who actually, come on, who can actually be against us? So thorough and faithful and loyal and consistent is the love of God for us in Jesus that Paul states even in the midst of real opposition, spiritual and human, who can really be against us. And if God did not withhold his own son from us, this definitive action of love? Won't he then graciously, lovingly give us all things? Listen to Romans 8, 35 through 39. Who shall separate us from the agape of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword? No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, seen or unseen, will be able to separate us from the agape of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul writes to followers of Jesus in the Roman region known as Asia Minor, And this letter is called Ephesians. Of course, there's a city named Ephesus, but the contents of the letter make plain that Paul intends that this letter be circulated all over the churches of Asia Minor. And it's to these people that he writes numerous things about the love of God, including how we now can do relationships in light of the love of God that we have received, and so he talks about normal spaces in, in relational spaces in their lives, and for many of us as well, spaces like marriage and parenting and work. To the husbands, listen to what Paul says, Ephesians 5.25, husbands, agape your wives just as Christ agaped the church and gave himself up for her. Oh, <laughs> Husbands, if you don't go home in the awesome fear of God, that's your job description. I mean, I do a lot of weddings. I don't know how many I've done, 50 or 60 over the years. Every wedding ceremony I do, I share this verse as the do- job description for a husband. Now, there's one for a wife as well, by the way. But this is the job description. And notice how Paul describes the definitive action of Jesus for the church. How does he describe it? Sounds a lot like John. He gave himself up. He didn't give up. Sounds very similar, but very different concept or construct. He gave himself up. He yielded himself up. Husbands, do not consider your place or position something that is just for self-gain, but rather give yourself up for the benefit of your wife. Agape her with every shred of agape you've received from Jesus. This is your way forward as a husband. This is how Christian husbands live. We wake up in the morning and whether we're getting our way or not, whether the relationship is in a pleasant state or not, our job description is to give ourselves up. This is the agape of God. And we must draw on the source, Jesus, to live this way. All of this is very helpful for where I asked you to turn in the beginning of the the teaching. I told you it would take a little while, about 25 minutes, right? 1 Corinthians 13. Paul writes to a people he knows and loves deeply. If you've read Acts, you realize that Corinth has been a little bit of a home away from home for Saul. He's originally from Tarsus, but during his missionary journeys, Antioch has become his space and place. So he has three journeys and he always ends up back at Antioch for rest and recuperation. But on the second journey, he lands in the city of Corinth and he stays for 18 months. He only stayed in Ephesus longer, for three years. He knows the names of the people he's writing to. He knows their children. He knows what trade or guild they are in. He knows what they do for a living. He knows where they live. He's been in their homes. He knows the Corinthians. He loves the Corinthians, but oh, 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 the Corinthians are a problem. The reason we have so much that we learn from the Corinthians is because they had issues and Paul had to address them. Scholars actually believe that Paul wrote at minimum four letters to the Corinthians. We have two of them, probably the second and the fourth, but we call them first and second, right? So the letter to 1 Corinthians comes about because he's in Ephesus on his third missionary journey and a courier comes and brings news from Corinth. And some of the news is so disheartening to Paul. So the first six chapters of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, is Paul responding to what he's heard about the state of the Corinthian church. And here's where he starts. He goes, what are you guys doing? Have you lost your minds? Jesus is everything. He's everything. So why are you breaking up in factions? Around humans. Why are some of you saying, I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Peter. What are you guys doing? Do you not know that we are stewards? Listen, some plant, others water, but God causes the growth. We aren't anything but stewards. Our work will either be refined or it will be burned up but that's who we are. Stop it. Stop rallying around us. Jesus, what are you guys doing? And he says, boy, guys, you guys have something going on in your church that you're not addressing that even the pagans would blush about. You have a case of incest and you're not doing anything about it. He talks about lawsuits between believers. He's incredulous. He's like, why are you dealing in bad business with each other? What are you guys doing? Do you not know that you're blaspheming the Glorious name of Jesus. You're taking your brother or sister to court. And in the Roman courts, Jesus' name is being blasphemed. Wouldn't it be better? This is what Paul says. Wouldn't it be better to be wronged than blaspheme the name of Jesus? Talks about their sexuality. Hey, you guys aren't being careful with this wonderful but powerful point of entrust. God has entrusted this to you. Be careful how you steward it. That's the first six chapters of 1 Corinthians. Uh, he gets to chapter seven and he goes, now about the matters you wrote about. So this courier actually brings questions from the Corinthians. And we have questions about certain things. They have questions about marriage and singleness. And Paul delves into each of these 1 Corinthians seven, really helpful texts for us. And then he goes into the subject matter of food sacrifice to idols and you go, huh, what is what? But you have to know that in the Roman world, the vast majority of the meat sold in the market had previously already been offered to a pagan god in one of the temples. So these followers of Jesus are now asking the question, can we eat that meat if it had first been offered to a pagan idol, essentially a demon? So Paul walks them through that. And then he says now about the spirituals, now about the spiritual gifts as we know them, about the charismata, these gifts of grace. I don't want you to be ignorant, brothers and sisters. You guys have lots of questions. And oh, by the way, when you gather in your house churches, you love these things. You love these demonstrations of divinity. So there's lots of tongues, there's interpretations, there's prophecies, there's words of wisdom and knowledge. All of this is going on. And we learn about these things because of the Corinthians. But we learn about them because of how poorly They're practicing them. And this is where we get the language the most excellent way. So Paul's in a prolonged conversation about these spiritual gifts. And he says, now I want to show you the most excellent way. Yes, be zealous for the gifts. He says, go after them. But let me show you the most excellent way of stewarding them. And that opens up 1 Corinthians 13. And he essentially says this. Listen, I could be the most impressive man in terms of these gifts. I could speak in the tongues of men and angels, but if I have not love, do you know how annoying I am? I'm a gong that everybody just wants to stop. So spiritual displays of power, not stewarded in love, actually are an irritant. I could prophesy all sorts of mysteries, but if I have not love, it gains me nothing. And by the way, it gains you nothing. I could offer my body up to the flames in martyrdom. But if I have not love, what have I gained? Elsewhere, he says this about the conversation. He says, you know, guys, knowledge puffs up. Look what I know. Aren't I impressive? Love builds up others. And then he gets to 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8. And it is the most beautiful exposition on love and all the scriptures. He says that love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, and it is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, and it keeps no record of wrong. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love, he says in summation, never fails. By the way, this is, of course, agape. The agape of God never fails. While we acknowledge that the immediate context for this statement is in a prolonged addressing of these spiritual gifts and the way in which we are to steward them, let us also say that this is the most profound articulation of the nature and the quality or the character of the love of God contained in one spot, the agape of God. The ways in which God moves towards us and then the ways in which he invites us to join him in moving towards others. I've recently been been reading a book very slowly. I'm not reading it quickly. I'm in the fourth chapter as we speak. I've been in the first three chapters for about a month, two months. It's entitled Renovated, God, Dallas Willard, and the Church that Transforms. It was actually handed me by our, our counselor. He said, I think you would benefit from reading this. As a pastor, as a follower of Jesus, I think you'd benefit from reading this. If you're not familiar with Dallas Willard, he's one of the most influential authors of the 20th century. He wrote even into the early part of this century. He went to be with the Lord in the early 2010s. Dallas Willard, he was a philosophy professor at USC. In fact, he was the chair of the department for a number of years. And he became known primarily as one who would write about the role of spiritual disciplines in the life of Jesus' followers to help shape us into Christ-likeness. Dallas Willard was obsessed with how we actually experience transformation. We, of course, have believed a gospel of transformation. You know that, right? We're not, this is not a, a gospel of sin modification or moderation. We're not moralistic twits. We believe a gospel of transformation that beginning with our spirit from the inside out, we are utterly transformed to the point that one day we will have new bodies and the sin sickness that presently infects us will be ripped out of us. What a glorious day that will be. Then any, any part of rebellion in me will just be gone. Oh, I can't wait. Because I want to love God with the sort of hesed he's loved for me. But there's this rebel inside of me. I hate him. But we all have him, okay? So he is asking this question. His writings are obsessed with like, How does a Christian experience this transformation, and how can one maximize or position oneself for this? But this book is ultimately, it's actually written by a man named Jim Wilder, who is a dear friend of Dallas Willard, and he took some of Willard's final teachings, and he combined it with his expertise, which is neuroscience. He's a brain scientist. He calls himself a (laughs) neurotheologian. So it's a fascinating book. It's a fascinating book. And the, the fundamental question is this. It's this observation now as Dallas was advanced in his life. Why is it that so many of us Christians can be decades into our walk with Jesus and still when we're honest, just admit that there's so many spaces in our soul that isn't quite as transformed as we would want them to be? How can we be so emotionally limited and immature even though we have followed Jesus with a commitment for decades? It's quite a conundrum, isn't it? How many of us far in the Lord have thought, you know, I thought I would be further along in Jesus. Maybe you thought, I thought I would be more loving. I thought it would be easier to forgive. I thought, dot, 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 you fill that in. That's what this book's about. And so I'm reading it slowly. And there's one just one section of the book that has stopped me in my tracks. And the Lord has been using to bring fresh works of transformation to my soul. You know, before I'm a pastor, I'm a child of God and a disciple of Jesus. And my conscience bothers me when I am proclaiming a gospel of transformation, but struggling to see it in my own life. I believe what I proclaim. Sometimes it's a little slow in its development within. So I'm reading this book, and, and he says something about this First Corinthians passage. Let me share it with you. It's a brief, brief quote. He says, We read 1 Corinthians 13 and just feel bad about ourselves. <laughs> How many of you were doing that even as I was reading it to you? <laughs> yeah. And that's what stopped me. I'm like, yeah, I do. Because I read that list and I go, well to that person I haven't been that way and to this person I haven't been that way and to basically everybody right now I'm not being this way. We read 1 Corinthians 13 and we just feel bad about ourselves. We read love is patient, love is kind and more often than not we wind up frustrated and discouraged. But the text doesn't say I do all these wonderful things, it says love does. And so 1 Corinthians 13 is in fact a proposition. If you'll receive love into your life over time, out will come the things that 1 Corinthians 13 says are true of love. That's what we need to learn. We don't try to do these things. We become the kind of person who does those things. If you try to do those things, it'll just kill you. (laughs) But if you receive love as the principle of your life in all dimensions of your being, well, then you'll see love. Love is kind, love does not envy, and so on, all the way down the line. And having received love, you will be transformed into a person who loves. This stopped me, because I'm in some relationships right now that are taxing. And I'm asking questions about my way In these relationships. Willard writes, we don't try to do these things. We become the kind of person who does these things. Love, of course, is described as one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit. In other words, it's one of the natural outcomes of the presence of God in our lives. We are the temples of the living God. God dwells in us. It's to the Galatians that Paul writes this. So he's first detailing all the ways our rebel wants to find expression, all the works of the flesh. But he says in opposition to that, there's a whole different way that's now true of you because the Spirit of God lives inside of you. And the evidence is the fruits of the Spirit are these. And by the way, you know that fruit is natural, right? A healthy apple tree just grows apples. It doesn't try it just does. We have a pear tree in our backyard. You want to know, a few years ago, it actually fell over. The, 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 the ground was so soggy from all the rain, and it was so heavy from all the pears. It was our first year in this new house, and we just didn't realize. So it fell over from the weight of all these pears, a healthy pear tree. It didn't bear pears for two years, but this year, they're all back and I'm eating a lot of pears from my own backyard. But fruit is natural. And this is what Paul's trying to say to the Galatians, that the natural outcome of the Spirit of God inside of you is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. But notice this, that he starts with love. And listen to Paul's language as he concludes his thoughts in 1 Corinthians 13, he says, now, now these three things remain. And this is all in the, he says, listen, all these, all these grace gifts, they're all going to pass away in some form because your faith will become sight in our experience with Jesus, right? So that's, that's where we're going. But these three things remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. He begins his fruit of the spirit with love, I think I've come to an understanding. I think this makes sense to me, so I want to offer it to you. That love is the seedbed from which all of the evidences of the Holy Spirit in us grows. Peace grows because we are loved. Patience develops because we are loved. Self-control develops because we are loved. Love is the seedbed from which everything grows. So when I have a patience problem with one of my children, and I do, you know what I need? I need to go back and just experience the love of God. This is what I'm realizing even in my challenging relationships. I can be transformed by the love of God to just be loving (laughs) towards those in my life that are a bit more challenging. It's easy to love the people who are easy. Like right now, you, I just love all of you because I don't know any of you and I don't have to deal with your problems. <laughs> Pastor Ben does and he loves you, but it's an agape sort of love. Okay. <laughs> I love you. I can say that. Well, there's, a, 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 there's a distance. But the closer you get to people, love is actually not to diminish but increase. So, yeah, when I'm having a self-control problem, I actually don't know that it's rooted in a self-control problem. I think I need to go back and experience the the love of God for me. So the Lord had me memorize 1 Corinthians 13. I mean, guys, I have read it more than innumerable times over my years of following Jesus. I've proclaimed it. I mean, I, I know it well enough from my devotional time and proclamation. I could probably give you most of it without thinking about it. But the Lord was like, I want this to get cemented in you. Memorize it. So I did. <laughs> I did. It's as if the Holy Spirit said, I want this at your disposal, like, freshly in front of you in every moment at all times. So, like, this has been my practice. Before I get out of bed in the morning, i um, Reflecting on the way of of, of Jesus towards me. Love is patient and love is kind. Jesus, you are so patient with me. I know there are places of stubbornness in me. You're so patient with me. You are so kind towards me. No one is more kind than you are. Just allowing all of these truths about the love of God to freshly be applied to me. Boy, I'll tell you, I find it a lot easier to interact with difficult people when I'm just steeped in the love of God. It's bringing transformation in these last couple of months to to stubborn places that just weren't quite letting go. And I offer it to you today. Listen, in, in conclusion, I just want to say this to you. God loves you. He loves you every which way the Bible says he does. God Ahava's you. He has affection for you. One of the prophets describes the Ahava love of God as like, it's, it's like a father in the kitchen with a daughter, right? You're passing each other to get a glass of water and then love overwhelms the dad and he stops and he grabs his daughter's hand and they start dancing in the kitchen. This is the way the prophet describes God's affection for Israel. He further says that God in his ahava will comfort you so this is, this is the nature of the love of God. When you're hurting, he draws near. He's near the brokenhearted. So he will comfort you in his love and he will dance over you with singing and rejoicing. That's what the prophet says. This is the nature of the Ahava love of God. God chesed you. He is utterly committed to you. As he's made his commitment to you and you have responded in faith to him, the truth is, is, there is, as Paul said, nothing that can separate you from this committed love of God. Not even a point of rebellion. Not even a hard-hearted, hard-headed stubbornness in you can separate from love. And God agapes you. All the ways Paul described, God loves you. God loves you. So I just wonder with you, where where would you like to see more transformation in your life? Start with the love of God. And let's join him in moving towards others with his love. Father, in the name of Jesus, we ask that your spirit would minister this to us. Holy Spirit, come. Overwhelm our defenses, Spirit of God. Yeah, breakthrough. Communicate the love of God to each one of these disciples. We thank you. Shape us. Move us towards Christ-likeness, Teach us. Teach us, teach us. And empower us to live your way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening today. Pastor Ben's mission is to equip the church to impact the world. If you want to get connected, check the show notes and visit bendixon.org. From there, you can learn about Pastor Ben's other podcasts, the books he has written, Ignite Global Ministries, and the online Immersion Discipleship School.